because I think it's really funny to just like point out that I laughed so hard that I started farting. You're especially gassy. Also, welcome back to Especially Heinous. See I love what I that I, I I did see what you did there. I love that I can never have um, pride <laughs> or uh, self assurance, confidence, dignity. I think that's the word. Self respect. Just also, doesn't exist over here. Also those things. But anyway, welcome back to Especially Heinous, a show where we talk about the bizarre true stories behind Law & Order SVU episodes. I'm Amber Frangie. I'm Jessica Jones. And just this like week, the superhero. <laughs> just like the superhero. And the, at one point, at least very popular Netflix series. Netflix? Yeah, it's, it's getting canceled. Is it? That's sad. Yeah. Um, I think... It's been around for a very long time at this well, point, though. the problem is that Marvel is owned by Disney, and Disney uh, is taking all their shit off Netflix, so gross. it's like a, fuck you, to Netflix, and it's like, okay, way to take away, like, the, the one, big property. The, like, the, one of the biggest draws to your, like, like, programming. Yeah. Oh, Netflix. Oh, Disney. I don't like Disney. Anyway. No We're one not here to talk about Disney. This is not a Disney podcast. It could very well be because I was the same like, thing about Gatorade last week. Let's not rehash that. Well, to reinforce that this could be a Disney podcast, I'm still listening to metal covers of Disney songs. Okay, well, <laughs> this week uh, we are. If you're wondering where I'm at emotionally, it's there. You're. I don't even. Your emotional health is just something else every week. It's a. One could call it an emotional roller coaster. Indeed. <laughs> Anyway, like a really poorly made old wooden one Fuck that your you. mom doesn't want you to come on. I'm sorry. <laughs> like the one roller coaster at the park that your mom's like, you are not getting you're on that. Absolutely not getting on that. <laughs> no fucking way you're getting on that thing. <laughs> anyway, this week we are talking about the episode Streetwise, which is actually one of my favorite episodes. I don't know why, because it's really fucking bleak, but I like it. I've never seen it. It's really good. It is season nine, episode 11. I actually wrote that down this time, so you're welcome. We didn't have to, like, scramble <laughs> like, to look uh, it up. <laughs> when, uh, was when was this episode? Hold on, let me Google it. Let me listen. Stop. Let me force you guys to listen to me type. <laughs> I guess I could just edit that out, but I'm fucking lazy. And, like, not tech-savvy, so... That's you guys a, are lucky this sounds like words. You're Honestly, y'all are lucky that this happens. Because, <laughs> God bless. And that it's only two minutes in and we're, like, kind of on topic. But anyway, we'll do a brief recap. Again, like, Streetwise is... A, I feel like a fairly early episode. I feel like anything before season 10 is, like, semi-early just because they're already on season 20. I like Just because Stabler is still there. Yeah. Well, actually... Yeah, Stabler's still there. I'm an idiot. He's definitely there. I remember his face being in this episode vividly. I think this might have been, like, his second to last season, though. At any rate, so, let's recap. Benson and Stabler are called to the scene after the body of a debutante is found in Central Park. Oh, God. Yeah. Pretty brutal. Uh, Emmy Warner quickly identifies the body as that of Shelby Crawford. Uh, she was in the system because of a recent DUI, so they're able to just ID her through her parents. Makes sense. Yeah. So that happens quickly, which is great. Uh, Elliot and Liv head to her parents' house, though, with the bad news, and we are instantly transported oh, Jesus. to a caricature of very rich New Yorkers. It's a lot. I feel like a lot of times these caricatures aren't very much caricatures, so which is just like... Yeah. yeah. Okay. I mean, I don't know. We're from the South, so I, I can't attest to how, like, rich Northerners speak, but... Donald Trump is a rich Northerner, and look how he speaks. Like a yeah, fucking no, idiot. Yeah, no, it's not like that. This is why I think it's, like, a caricature. Okay. So her mom speaks with one of those, like, affected, like, Max oh from Season 7 of Drag Race accents, you know what I'm talking about? 
probably they probably don't know what the, you're talking about because that was a very niche no, character. It wasn't. Uh, oh my god, Max had like three fans. I love Max. the reason they kept him around because he wore like cha- he was chapstick and mascara Twitter, but for RuPaul's Drag Race. I enjoyed Max. That's not the point. That like mid Atlantic kind of 1940s like actress accent. Yeah, talk where, like that. Like where it's not quite an American accent. It's but not it's quite not a quite, British yeah. accent. It's like that. It's like weirdly colonial. It's an affected Madonna accent. Yeah, but like worse, but fancier. Like Madonna, but like if she never did like a hard drug in her life. (laughs) Madonna if she wasn't constantly trying to be edgy. So anyway, Shelby's parents uh, tell the detectives that Shelby was supposed to be at a ball last night. I don't know if it was like a coming out party. I don't think it was because I imagine her parents would be there, but like a ball. She was probably, um, as somebody who's had to work with debutantes and find them like gowns because they would always come to bridal shit. Yeah. Yeah, she was probably, like, one of the older girls there who was there as, like, a chaperone. Well, she was only 17, so maybe, depending on what kind of ball it was. I don't know. I don't know if it was, like, a younger, like, cotillion ball or, like, a full-out debutante situation. It doesn't matter, ultimately. But when Benson and Stabler uh, go, they go to find the kids who were at the ball. And they interview her friend Anna and some other friend whose name I genuinely cannot recall. And I just, like, she's a blip of a character and I'm sorry. But they interview her friend Anna and her boyfriend Doug. And they find out that Shelby was kind of living a double life. Uh, As is, uh, like, a common common. trope of SVU. Yeah, especially with, like, anyone who goes to a private school or anyone who's rich. But she was dating a much poorer dude in a band. He even goes to a public school. (gasps) The shock and horror. Yeah, gasp. And, uh... Like, you literally had to put asterisk, gasp, asterisk. I literally wrote gasp in the notes. Love that. Um, But they also told told them that she and one of her friends had wandered into the like into Central Park that night to get drunk and FaceTime said boyfriend from a public school. So that's how she ended up there. Honestly, it makes me feel so old to hear that they were like FaceTiming because that was like not a thing when we were in high school. No, it was not. Maybe it was for like very wealthy people who had iPhones, but I, I had, didn't I had an iPhone in high school oh, and it didn't do that. I had like a or I was like banned from that function. I had a Blackberry in high school. I had this... I started high school with a sidekick. I had a sidekick, and then I had a Motorola chocolate, which I was so <laughs> excited about. That just made me sound so old. And I then I got an iPhone 4. Okay. Let's let's keep it back anyway, on track. Sorry. This is going to be a lengthier episode because the case we're covering is bananas, so And I'm also like... Us. You're just yourself. <laughs> Wild. So. Yeah. Sorry. So there's many a twist and turn uh, and a handful of false leads, as is kind of the tradition with SVU episodes. At one point, they think Anna, who turns out is boning Doug, her <gasps> fake boyfriend. Oh my god. Yeah. They think Anna killed Shelby out of, like, in a jealous rage. But that doesn't make a whole lot of sense to me because Shelby has, like, another boyfriend. So, why, you know. There's just a lot happening. There's a lot happening already. And this isn't, like, the first... 15 minutes of the episode. Like, this is already giving me anxiety, and I'm already covered in anxiety hives. (laughs) I'm sorry. Like, I literally have my... I'm literally trying to scratch a hive that's in, like, the crook of my elbow. But uh, eventually, they find surveillance footage from a pawn shop showing an emaciated young girl, like, young, like, fourth or fifth grade, maybe a little older than that, pawning one of Shelby's diamond earrings that had been, like, ripped off of her ear. Oh, I... Sorry. I'm sorry. I just didn't like the use of the word rip. Well, it had been taken off of her in the attack. I... I know, I just got a visual. Sorry. 
Sorry. I just had to, like... That's the least brutal part of the whole murder no, thing. I've had an earring, like, Me ripped too. out. Yeah, look at that shit. I had a... One of my dogs did it. Woof. I just slept in really heavy earrings when I was a kid, like an idiot. But anyway, this leads them to the underground world of street families. Uh, eventually, they find they find the girl that they saw on camera. Her name's Josie, and she hitchhiked uh, to New York City around 8 to escape her abusive mom and pervy, predatory stepdad. Or maybe it was her mom's boyfriend. But nonetheless, she had a really shitty home life, so she hitchhiked all the way to the city. Which is fucking sad. And it just gets, like, this whole thing, it's a lot. They bribe her with pizza and ice cream, essentially, to, like, after noticing, like, how emaciated and underweight she is. I know. And, like, to get her to talk. It's not pleasant. And, like, as much as I and I think everybody who tunes into SVU love Benson and Stabler, and I think, like, normally they kind of exist in this, like, fantasy world where cops don't suck. This is so unethical. Like, it just feels really gross. It just feels skeevy. Yeah. And I mean, like, I, I realize like, that. Like, hey, here, uh, tell us what we want to hear, and we'll give this, you like, food that you haven't had I know you're to. a starving child, but, like, watch us eat this pizza and cookies and ice cream. It's like a whole smorgasbord. And then eventually, because she, she's fucking literally starving, mm. she, like, caves. And, like, I know cops trick people, and that's, like, a thing that happens in interrogations in the real world. It's but so it's gross. still fucking gross. <laughs> so after bribing Josie, she explains that her street mom, a woman named Cassidy, told her told her street dad, a dude named Cole, that Shelby called him a gay slur. Use your imagination. It's, like, the most common one. I'm sure you can figure it out. <laughs> yeah. Uh, horrified at the insinuation that he's gay, which, like, grow up, dude. Cole beat Shelby to death with a smiley chain. Yeah. No. Yeah, which is real skinheady. Even though this dude isn't a skinhead in the episode, we're going to get into some, like, interconnecting street culture and neo-Nazi culture shit. So, like, keep that in mind for, you know, going forward. Uh, So, this is SVU. As we've mentioned before, the kind of tradition is many a twist and turn so it's not over yet if you thought it was just a straightforward murder of some girl who said something homophobic you would be wrong so it turns out that cassidy the bedraggled street mom who claims to have escaped a mother who sold her into literally sold her into sex slavery like the worst thing you can imagine a mom doing she's actually one of shelby's rich classmates (gasps) who just like left her home because she was like fed up with her rich parents rules and her name is helen (gasps) Oh my god. Yeah. That's, like, why this is one of my favorite episodes, because it's fucking bananas. I literally have to go watch this when I get home. It's very interesting, but I I literally don't have a choice. I have to go watch this. It's definitely on Hulu, at least. Maybe not. I don't have Hulu. Well, look for it somewhere. It's probably on Amazon Prime. Just find it. Honestly, it's probably been, like, ripped and uploaded to YouTube. Yeah. Just look for it, but it's... Or I'll give you my Hulu password. I don't care. But... At any rate, uh, at Helen, like, when they find out who she is, it's, like, in the course of her being on trial. Like, she asks, she says she'll testify against Cole for the murder because he also ends up killing Josie for snitching. So, yes, Marlon is being very cute. Y'all can't see this, but my cat is, uh, for once in his life, being well-behaved and very Like, literally adorable. being held like a baby and rubbed and, like, cuddling into me. It's He's so a little baby. Sweet. But anyway, so in the when they find out that Cassidy is actually Helen, she's in the course of testifying against Cole, and the only way they could get her to agree to do so was by, like, 
promising her a train ticket to San Francisco because she was like, I'll hook up with another street family. Okay, that makes sense. Yeah, which makes sense. And, like, it's not uncommon, I think, for that to kind of be, uh, like, a bargaining chip to get people who are scared to testify to do so if you're like, we'll get you out of here. That makes sense, right? They find out she's just this rich kid. Her parents, like... Shut the fuck up. Yeah, her parents, like, get her all cleaned up, cut off her, like, white lady dreadlocks, which she has at one point. Oh, God. Like, spruce her up, and she just... Like, it turns out that she lied about Shelby calling Cole the F word because she was, like, embarrassed about being seen in her new, like, homeless state. So, there's that. Oh, my God. There's just so much happening there. Yeah. So, ultimately, Helen goes back to her family. She gets all cleaned up. uh, And she is brought, like, goes to trial herself for her role in Shelby's murder. So, the end. (laughs) Good. But, yeah. So, that's Streetwise. That's the episode we'll be talking about. And, oh, my God. And the interesting thing is... So, like, there is a database, and, like, we've mentioned a book before of cases that SVU episodes were based on, and, like, like a whole last list. This is not, I think it's on there, but it lists... It's just, like, briefly mentioned. It's very briefly mentioned, and it mentions a totally unrelated case, like a different uh, Central Park death, which is, I mean, probably part of the inspiration, at least. But uh, there is actually a much more similar case, and... Just a whole ass culture that they base this episode on that I Your actually... Your cat just like rubbed his balls into my hair. I hope I'm you understand sorry. what I just went through. They're very like empty because he's fixed. Does that help? <laughs> Not really. It's the principle of it. He doesn't know what a ball is. He's just rubbing. Anyway. <laughs> he's just rubbing. Yeah. He's I don't cat. like that. I'm sorry. So before we dive into the specific case that I think this episode was probably based on, uh, I want to give a little primer on, like, the phenomenon of street families in general. Yeah, because a lot of people probably don't understand, like, the actual, like, dynamics that go into that. That was loud. Sorry. But yeah, it's, I mean, I don't want to say weird, but it's like an un, it's like an underground thing, and if you aren't, like, if you haven't studied it or experienced it yourself or, like, had a friend who is in that subculture, it might just be, like, a thing you've never heard of. So, we're going to talk about that a little bit. Uh, This is actually something I know a decently good amount about. Uh, I hung out with a lot of gutter pumps when I was a teenager, which is weird. But I, while getting my criminal justice degree, I read and wrote a lot about this particular subculture. I don't know why. I think maybe because it reminded me of a lot of my teenage friends (laughs) who were, like, within it. But, or, like, on the periphery. Anyway, uh, street families have provided a safety net, albeit a precarious one, for runaway kids since at least the 80s, maybe before that, but that's the first like kind of documented time when yeah. they had a real surge. Uh, a lot of people trace their origins to California and the Pacific Northwest, uh, but they appear in a ton of different big cities and like kind of liberal areas that homeless teens in general tend to flock to. Think like Seattle, Portland, even New Orleans. There's, like, always kind of a big New York. Yeah. Chicago. Manhattan, Chicago. Austin, even. Yeah. Places like that. Big city city centers, even in, like, red states. But places where, like... Like Miami. Yeah. People are weird. People are maybe more generous. There's party culture. Stuff like that. So they're typically... The families themselves are typically helmed by two older people who are usually, at least, like, from what I've seen firsthand and, like, read about and written about like usually 20 somethings I think maybe sometimes up until their 30s but usually in their 20s usually by 30 they've like grown died. out of that phase <laughs> yeah. or died yeah or OD like which is terrible and I don't mean to say that to be callous but like realistically there's a lot of drug culture intersecting with this and like 
living on the streets is fucking hard. So, you know. You got to do what you got to do. Yeah, it's hard to stay healthy if you're not naturally a healthy person when you're living outside. But anyway, um, it's usually like two 20-somethings who have lived on the streets for years and dub themselves like the parents of younger kids, particularly those who have recently run away. Uh, and really, it, it kind of makes sense. Like, yeah. if you're out on your own, especially if you come from a home without, like, any kind of support support or stability, it stands to reason that you'd want, you'd, like, be drawn to this kind of family unit. I think it's often kind of the reason kids in shitty home situations join white supremacist groups and what have Jesus you, which Christ. sucks, but, like, It gives it's them a true. sense of community that they didn't have at yeah, home. Yeah, it gives them a sense of family and pride and, like, something to belong to and, like, there's not necessarily a direct correlation between those two things, but in some areas, particularly the city we'll be talking about, there is a little bit of one, so. Like, there's a little bit of correlation, but not causation. Yeah, it's not, like, a direct thing, but... But there are definitely, like, ties. Like, general homeless kid, traveler, gutter punk community has a history of uh, skinhead shit, so. God, like, literally seeing anyone with, like, a buzz cut gives me like it gives me more hives yeah it even gives me hives and I don't get them very often I think that's just like the curse of being a brown person honestly just like just somebody tweeted me if if you also just get anxiety hives because I need to know if that's like I'm pretty sure it's a thing well it's clearly a thing I just (laughs) need to know if it's a thing for other people as well I'm sure it must be but yeah tweet at Jessica if uh you get anxiety hives Particularly if they're about reborns, because I have a whole... We're not going down that wormhole right now. (laughs) I meant rabbit hole, but wormhole works. So, But to be clear, just as like a brief disclaimer, I don't want this episode to sound judgmental or dismissive about young people experiencing homelessness. Uh, I think a big part of the problem that kind of causes the cycle that causes this stuff is a lack of empathy, and I don't want us to like participate in that at all. Having said that, like we said before, street families aren't always just about taking care of each other. They definitely can be. But the, not always. Uh, there's a lot of violence and mistrust within some parts of the subculture. And in some areas, that's commingled with bigotry, which is what brings us to Portland. Oh, Jesus. The granddaddy of supposedly liberal cities that have a lot of bigotry happening. Like, you, when people see Portland, they think Starbucks. No, that's Seattle. That's Seattle. No, Never they mind. think Portlandia. But, like... <laughs> I'm just going to keep my mouth shut because I was already just incorrect. <laughs> I mean, it's nearby. At least it wasn't like on the other part of the country, on the other side. You know? Because I almost said Portland, Maine for a second. I was like, ooh, nope, Portland, Oregon, Jessica. Yep, nope. We're, we're in the Pacific wrong. Northwest, as stated earlier. But anyway, we're going to dive into Portland street culture a little bit. And like, obviously, we're from Florida, but I have friends in the Pacific Northwest and I've been there myself. And it is. As previously mentioned, like, a weird thing, because it is, like, largely a liberal city, and, I don't know, like, pot's legal there, and they have, like, universal health care for some state residents, and it's, like, a whole thing, and there's hippies and vegans all over the place, but it's also a really hard place to live if you're a person of color, so. There's, like, just a fuck ton of skinheads. So many skinheads in the Pacific Northwest, like, that Green Room movie is literally about this. With Patrick Stewart and Alia Shaka, yeah, it's really rough. I try to forget that movie <laughs> so desperately i took mckenzie to see it not realizing it was like a violent movie and she can't even watch like regular horror films and she was she like can crying. barely watch like law and order she yeah can barely she, like, watch the watch show this episode like, she can barely watch the show that this podcast is based on yeah if you are sensitive don't watch green room it's a 
fucking shit show Honestly, of even if you could sit through, like, the most horrific episode of, like, American Horror Story, don't yeah. watch Green Room. Unless you're, like, a big Rob Zombie fan and you just love gore porn, don't you know what? subject yourself to if it. If you really enjoyed Hostel, you'd probably <laughs> like Green Room. Which means, like, you're probably not listening to this podcast. Which means you probably need <laughs> Found us therapy. Found mistake. <laughs> anyway, um... So while homeless teens, as we said, exist pretty much everywhere, and the fa- and, home- and street families as such exist in a lot of large cities, Portland, Oregon, and the Pacific Northwest at large, but Portland in particular, has long been a mecca for them. Uh, early on, a lot of people ar- argued that this was because the city was too liberal, which like air quotes, of course. <laughs> Portland was the home and is the home of the first needle exchange outside in, uh, which is a clinic that also offers like a shit ton of different services to homeless people and youth in particular uh, in the United States. So like the first ever one that existed. Jesus. I think they're also the first supervised injection site, but I'm not 100% certain on that. Uh, and the rise of their homeless youth population is often attributed to their more empathetic approach to drug abuse and drug laws. And I, Seattle kind of gets some of that, too. So does San Francisco. But San Francisco also has a shit ton of, like, basically anti-homeless laws, though. So I don't think they have that reputation anymore. Yeah, San Francisco's, like, a shitty, shitty place. Like, if you sit on the sidewalk, you'll get a ticket. Like, everybody loves, like, vacationing in San Francisco without realizing just how shitty, shitty, shitty that place is. I mean, is. it's nice if you go to, the, like, fun, like, the right places, but you're just gentrifying them at that point because all the the good places, like, the fun places in San Francisco are the ones that white people haven't ruined yet. Exactly. So, like, you know. But they're 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 going close. to. Yeah. They're, I'm they're sure they're going to. They're creeping in. <sighs> yeah. As capitalism goes. Yeah. But anyway, uh, it's probably at least partially true that kind of more lax laws and more resources attract homeless kids. And, you know, I mean, it makes sense that if yeah, you're it just from, makes like, their lives easier. Yeah, like if you're from like some state in the Midwest where there's not a lot of resources and you are traveling around and you've been kicked out of your house or left and you have a drug problem, it kind of makes sense to go to a place where you have access to yeah somewhere you can inject safely and like be around a nurse in case something bad happens. But Beyond that, I think there's kind of a more sinister reason for the uptick in street families and, like, street kids in general in this area. Not, and, like, to be clear, not all homeless kids join these families. I think actually most of them don't and are just kind of free agents, but still a thing. Yeah. They're still, like, common enough that this is, like, going on. A phenomenon. I don't know if they're as common today as they were in, like, the 80s through the early aughts, but they're definitely still, in Portland specifically, ones that operate. I think with just, like, how kind of distrusting we've become as, like, a congregation of people. (laughs) I couldn't think of another word for a second, so I just went with congregation. Like, we're a church. I mean, (laughs) continue with with your fun. God. Like, just, like, how distrustful we've become as, like, a group of people that everybody's so afraid of kind of connecting yeah that like what little resources they have might be stolen or and just with like the 24-hour news cycle we people have become more aware of like crime that's related towards them so it's just become like this thing of like hyper vigilance and kind of like yeah like an insular individualistic thing exactly Yeah. yeah I think that's definitely true I think back when these sorts of, like, groups originated in, like, the 80s and 90s, we weren't necessarily fiercely, like, isolationist the way we are today. But to continue on, Portland is, like, as we said earlier, very well known, at least among people of color, 
for having two sides to it. Though the city is much more left-leaning than a lot of others in the U.S., including where we are. Oh my god. Yeah, by a fucking long shot. The state as a whole was originally founded, literally, I'm not, like, you can look this up, it's fucking true, as a paradise for white people. Yeah, like, it, reading the history of Portland is so... And Oregon as a whole. Yeah. like... It's horrifying. It's fucking horrifying. Like, literally, black people and brown people and people of color were not allowed there for a long time. So, like, it was founded as a white utopia. So, echoes of that history still exist today, like you would expect, because it's not like it's been around since the 1500s. America's a pretty young country, so stuff like that carries into our culture all the time. Like, that's why, like, institutional racism and other types of bigotry even exist. Exactly. And then, like, I think I was literally having to explain to somebody... Oh, one of the uh, girls who's in my training is from Puerto Rico, and, like, racism, the way it exists in the United States itself... It's a unique, like, monster. Like, literally doesn't exist in Puerto Rico. Yeah, like, there's of kind of, like, a difference in, like, there is, like, slight uh, colorism, but not to the huge, like, fucking level of racism that it is in America. Yeah, and I think, I mean, like... Colorism exists everywhere, but the sheer, oh, totally. like, racism itself of it doesn't there, really... You know, like, there... Racism exists everywhere, but it's not... Like, Amer- because America is such a heterogeneous country, it's such a different animal. Like, it is next level. And I think... We also, like, continued it past when literally everyone else was like, yo, that's not cool. Could you not? Yeah, we're behind. Like, literally every other country on the planet was like, yo... That's fucked up. Yeah, I mean, like, literally, so, like, we're- We, we quit doing that ages ago. Y'all we're in Florida, that. and we just got a Jim Crow law off the books this November. Like, a literal Jim Crow Wait, law. Wait, which one? The felony voting law. Oh, my God. I yeah. forgot about that. Like, literally. <laughs> oh, I literally forgot about that because I was trying to just, like, repress. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, like, that's, you know, America in general is, like, hella racist, and Portland is, and the Pacific Northwest is kind of this, was originally thought of as white people who are kind of escaping the South and the East in general, and all of, the, like, the, I don't know, dirty brown and black people were going out to the West, so it's gross, but... Again, echoes of that history still around, and uh, there are high numbers of white supremacist groups kind of concentrated in that area, according to watch groups like the Southern Poverty Law Center. They have, like, a whole ass map of them, and it's fucking lit up if you look anywhere in the state of Oregon. Are you really taking a selfie right now? Well, look at your cat. He is sitting on your shoulders. All right. But uh, a lot of their longer-lasting street families, uh, including the Sick Boys, who are known for, like, particularly brutal cage match-inspired fights. Oh, Jesus. That's the thing. I I do not like that. But a lot of families like that have roots in skinhead culture. And if you kind of trace back street families in general, there is kind of, again, like an intersection. Yeah. Because a lot of 80s punk kind of dovetailed with skinhead culture. Like, literally most of it. Yeah. Fair enough. But I think that rhetoric is honestly probably what attracted people, bad people, including the terrible man we'll be talking about shortly. Oh, God. This, yeah. Get ready for, like, This is going to get rough, y'all. I'm sorry. This is a... Apologies ahead of time. Yeah, apologies ahead of time because this is, like, a really rough case, but we're going to do our best to cover it in a way that is hopefully both respectful and not a fucking downer. But anyway, before we dive into talking about the perpetrator, I want to tell you about the victim in the story. So we're going to talk about Jessica Williams. Uh, In 2003, Jessica Kate Williams was 22 years old and eager to join the adult world. Uh, Born with fetal alcohol syndrome, or FAS, 
Jessica struggled through school for most of her life, uh, but ultimately graduated alongside her peers in 1999. Despite her academic struggles, though, uh, she loved to socialize and was always eager to make new friends, so keep Super that in fun. mind. Uh, she lived with her adopted parents in Gladstone, which was like kind of a suburban area near-ish Portland. And according to her family, she was sweet, ambitious, uh, but her brain just didn't work like a neurotypical adults would because of damage that had happened in utero. Because of her mom's drinking, or bio-mom's drinking problem, uh, her cognition was just stuck at a certain level, uh, leaving her with according to her family's estimation, which I'm assuming like came from a doctor, uh, she had the mental capacity of a 12-year-old yeah. around there. A lot of times to get those exact numbers, you, um, like the organization that I work with has something called CPT, which is the mm-hmm. Child Protection Team. They do a lot of medical stuff. So if a kid is born with like... Um, FAS or something similar. Yeah. They immediately, like you immediately have to call the Child Protection Team and they do a full medical, psychological, um, forensic interview everything to kind of get like a base level for the yeah. kid. So she probably had to go through something similar to that to get that kind of, uh, yeah. So number. she was adopted into the Williams home when she was nine months old. Uh, I'm assuming they did all of that with, you know, when she was, I don't know if her birth mother gave her up for adoption or if she was placed into foster care, but nonetheless, I'm assuming she went through like all of those evaluations pretty early on before she came to the Williams household. Uh, the Williamses actually had, I think, 14 kids. Jesus Christ. Yeah. The mo- most of them had uh, different kind of cognitive or, you know, mental disabilities. So they, they knew what they were doing. Like, they knew how to raise neurodivergent kids. God bless. Yeah. Because, like, I can't even imagine having one child. Yeah. 14 is a lot. I can't imagine taking care of myself. They were, like, very, ra- like, they varied a lot in age, though, so it's not like they were all in the house at the same time, necessarily, Still, but, yeah. I can I can't take care of myself, and they've got 14 children? Yeah. Admirable. I could not do that at all. But, yeah, they had a lot of kids. Uh, they were, like, big, happy family, very traditional, all of that. Um, so Jessica's sister describes her as a big teddy bear, the sweetest, most kind person. Oh, ow. Which is really sweet. Yeah. And I don't, I don't love describing neurodivergent people as childlike because I feel like that can be kind of infantilizing and dismissive. Yeah. It really kind of like, it like removes their agency a little bit. And I don't like that. But uh, that's essentially how most of the people who knew her describe her. She got along best with people who were a little bit younger than she was, uh, including her nine-year-old nephew who adored her. Mm. Yeah. So good, like, you know, standard family life, tight-knit, very close. Uh, oh, wholly unrelated, but reading the name Jessica in all it, of this. Is it a lot? <laughs> it. I thought about that while I was typing these. Yeah, like, I kind of, like, skimmed the notes this time because I was warned that the episode was going to be, like, a, a lot. lot. Um, so, like, I kind of skimmed it, and I kept seeing, like, my name, and I didn't really make the connection that the victim's yeah. name was Jessica, and it was like, why are we talking about me so much? Nope, that's different, That's just, Jessica. like, my egotism coming out to play. Anyway, though, but, this Jessica, not you, the one we're talking about. Uh, <laughs> well, when you said this Jessica, you literally waved your hand sorry. at me. I was so just, it was just gesturing like, what, what is happening? But though Jessica was more dependent than other young adults at the time, and I say at the time mostly because I think the stigma of living in your parents' home, like, into your 20s has, like, largely, maybe not totally disappeared, but, like, is diminishing a lot. Yeah. Because Like, as somebody who lives with her parents. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, like, I lived at home until I was, like, 22 or 23. Like, it's just a thing. But she was excited to join the workforce nonetheless. Uh, when she got a job in downtown Portland, she threw herself into it full force, uh, taking the bus to the city early each morning and 
like hanging out kind of in the downtown area and making new friends during her lunch breaks. Unfortunately, some of those friends included kids from one of the city's more violent street families known as Thantos. Oh my god, like the fucking villain from yep. the Avengers. Indeed, like that. The oh, myth it's, it's uh, based on. Thantos. Yeah, it's Thantos. a hard Okay, thank you. You're welcome. I don't know if it's like entirely, like, if it's like perfectly like one-to-one with the way. movie, but it, it's like that same mythology. Oh, Jesus. Yes. But Jessica was unfazed by her friend's lifestyle. She just liked hanging out with them. Uh, they treated her like an equal, like a grown-up, and they thought she was really smart. In a book about this case called All God's Children, which is a little I've bit... of that. It's a little... Okay. Some of the takes are pretty problematic. The yeah. author has some weird moralizing going on, but it's very comprehensive, and she talked to these kids, and like... It's very interesting. So it's but, kind of like the um, Paris is Burning documentary where it's like, the yeah. information is like helpful and useful, but like, god damn it, you did yeah. it wrong. Yeah, it's like a lot of, I think, and it was written in the early 2000s, like right very soon after everything that we're going to talk about happened. So like, I think part of it was just, you know, the time and that people were a little less empathetic and a little more skeptical of kids in these situations, but yeah. we'll get into that. Uh, but in that book, the author talks about Jessica kind of talked herself up to these kids and like made it sound like she was like super, super like academically talented and stuff. And it's like, you know, when you're young and you're meeting new people who aren't aware of like things you've struggled with, you might kind of, yeah, Yeah. make yourself sound like cooler, smarter, more mature than you are. Like, I think a lot of people do that in their early twenties. So like, whatever, but she really liked hanging out with them. Like we said, like they, and they liked her, like she was very friendly as mentioned earlier very eager to make friends very sociable so you know all good things but kind of her undoing in this case which is fucking sad yeah but her life with the thantos kids was a radical departure from her life at home where even though i don't think her family like intentionally coddled her especially from like stuff they kind of say later on she i think she kind of felt like a kid and she was eager to be a young woman because she was they probably Pardon the phrase, treated her with kid gloves. <laughs> yeah. And I mean, when you're one of the things that FAS causes, and a lot of, you know, neurodivergencies and cognitive disorders can cause this, is just like your development is kind of arrested. Like you're not, you don't necessarily have like the same skills and like emotional, uh, like EQ, like emotional intelligence that yeah. somebody your given age generally does, which like, doesn't necessarily have to be life ruining or anything. I think a lot of people probably struggle with that kind of emotional intelligence thing or emotional regulation without any kind of diagnosis like that. But I think in Jessica's case, she was very, she was eager to grow up and strike out on her own as like most 20 year old, 22 year olds, 20 somethings are. And people took advantage of that, which is gross. (laughs) But she quickly blended into the fabric of the Street family, going home to Gladstone at night, but spending much of her free time in the city with her new friends. At one point, she even tried to kind of merge her two worlds, at least according to All God's Children. Uh, she brought a few homeless kids to her family home. This, somewhat understandably, freaked out her parents. <laughs> yeah, which, you know, as it would. Uh, but they realized they couldn't force her to do what they wanted. She was an adult, and she had a right to make her own decisions. Yeah, she is like... Autonomous. Yeah, like, she has, you know, agency and can decide who she wants to spend time with. And I think, like, they knew if they, like, ruled with an iron fist that she would have just left. Yeah, it was not, it would not have gone the way they planned. Yeah, exactly. But they still, you know, were weary of these new people as 
you would be. <laughs> but the strife with her family kind of reinforced her desire to strike out on her own, find her own place, just leave. Uh, she lived with a friend named Lauren Whitcomb for about a week. Uh, around this time, though, she hoped to get her own place soon. Some reports say that she was sleeping under a bridge uh, at one point, but her family disputes this, as does the book we previously mentioned. And so I don't think that was ever true. Yeah, it was probably something that was just put out there to, like, kind of sensationalize her situation. Well, there's a reason, or at least I think there's a reason why that was kind of put out there, and we'll get into that in just a little bit. Um, yeah, I'm also, like, chiming in with, like, not accurate information because I skimmed the notes because I still kind of want to, like, be surprised. Yeah, well, it'll be a depressing surprise. Ah, Jesus. Yeah. So Rebecca Williams, Jessica's mom, says her primary goal was actually to utilize the services offered by Outside In to get her own apartment. And, like, a, you know, long-term job and kind of a career path and just get set up as an adult. Makes sense. Yeah. But she lied and... And this is, like, ve- verified by both her mom and All God's Children. She lied and told them she was homeless so that they would help her because I don't know if they provide services to people who have, like, are in, like, a transitional phase of life or aren't technically homeless. Yeah. But, and, like, I'm, their primary focus is helping homeless young people. So she told them she didn't have a place to live so that they would help her, which is honestly, like, kind of clever, as, like, shady as it is. Yeah, I mean, should. She yeah. knew how to be resourceful. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, but they never managed to place her anywhere, as far as we know. Uh, during this time, she also started dating one of the boys in the family who liked her a lot. He kind of felt protective of her, I think, because... Even though she was, like, in her 20s, again, that kind of younger nature. Like, yeah. I think she probably, like, she fit in well with a group of, you know, 16 to 20-year-olds because that's probably kind of, like, emotionally where she was at. Even, like, with mental faculties of 12, I think, like, I don't know, teenagers, right? <laughs> like, teenagers, man. Am yeah. I right? Everyone's all over the place in terms of where their, like, brains at anyway, <laughs> so... They, uh, their relationship was largely an innocent one with, at least in the book, like both parties being noted as like they were never physical with each other. They were just very sweet. They held hands. They called each other boyfriend and girlfriend. But soon things turned sour. Oh, so no. this is where it gets rough. Oh. And I'm sorry. God. So Jessica started telling family members that one of the other boys uh, had offered her money to sleep with him, which was a clear violation of their code or like their family rules. In street families. Why didn't they just boot him? Yeah, well, it gets more complicated. Oh, God. So in street families, there are often, and this is actually, like, the reasons for the murders and Streetwise, the episode we talked about a little while ago, which is why I think this case is probably what it was actually based on. And it also, in the episode, it comes out that Cole, the man who murdered Shelby, had murdered a few other people, which will be echoed when we talk about the perpetrator in this case. Uh But there were a series of rules that everyone had to abide to, and a lot of them had to do with, like, romantic stuff and sex stuff. And one of them was, like, never to solicit – I don't know if it was never solicit anyone for sex work, but, like, you couldn't solicit a woman in the family. Yeah, that makes sense. Which, like, makes sense because, like, ew, if you're family. Well, yeah, it also, like, helps to keep from there being, like – messy like breakups and lines and everything drawn yeah yeah and like you know this is gonna sound like very ancient of me (laughs) but like you when you even when you're just like sleeping with someone that's like a friends with benefits thing you do kind of get 
kind of a possessive feeling over yeah. them. Where, like, even if they start sleeping with someone else, it's like a, oh, really? Was sleeping with me not enough? Yeah, especially when you're younger, I think it's easy to get kind of emotionally attached. But, like, yeah, as previously mentioned, as far as we know, Jessica wasn't, like, physically intimate with any of these guys, but she did say that this guy was soliciting her. And I don't... Yeah. This was just, like, a way to keep it from happening in the group. Yeah. Because this is all stuff that could have happened if it did. I think, yeah, if anything, she was kind of trying to warn the other young women, like, assuming this is true. Like, hey, this guy might be trying to get weird with you. Yeah. But ultimately, the more seasoned members of the group decided this wasn't true. Okay. It's kind of complex in the book and that they, like, freak out at the guy and, like, beat the shit out of him and then he, like, says it's not true and they... They figure he's telling the truth. I don't fucking know. Yeah. I kind of think this whole thing about her lying is bullshit. Because, like, maybe she did. I don't know. Maybe she misunderstood something someone said as, like, solicitation. I have no idea. But I think it was just an excuse to beat up this poor woman. And Probably. Yeah. So, he turned on her. And on May 23rd, 2003... A railroad engineer found Jessica's body behind the train tracks. Oh, and this was she was found near a bridge, and I think that might be why early reports said she'd lived under the bridge and oh, maybe thought she was sleeping or something. Oh, okay, that, that makes, was not the case at all. Yeah, that makes a lot more sense for that to be yeah. included then. Again, she wasn't like they didn't ambush her when she was tired or anything. They actually had one of her friends lure her into yeah so they essentially kidnapped her so like it wasn't like this was a place she was staying they took her there i can feel hives i'm sorry it's awful yeah and i don't want to get like overly specific about the details of her death because it is truly truly awful but her autopsy revealed that she'd been stabbed and bludgeoned to death before being i'm sorry before being lit on fire presumably to hide her body i think that maybe was the thinking i can i can actively feel more hives forming on my neck i'm sorry it's again fucking awful like this is a rough rough case and i know it's not like i think the last few things we've talked about even though even though they were you do have more hives even though they were sad too i think we're kind of a little more fun and lighthearted and hopeful there's nothing like that here literally none of that happening here yeah But later on, uh, when members of the Thantos family were arrested, police learned that she had also been tortured leading up to her death. I don't, again, I don't want to recount any details, but lots of beating. Like, you can can make probably a correct assumption about what happened. I think the goal was to get her to admit to lying and to just assault her, but then it escalated because she wouldn't. And, like, I'm kind of inclined to think she wasn't fucking lying. Yeah. It would make sense. Yeah. Anyway, we are going, before we like get, you know, towards the trial aspects and what ended up happening to these awful fuckers, we're going to talk about the perpetrator who is awful and notoriously racist. And I do like the reason this case kind of fits both into the less dead realm and the especially heinous realm is because Jessica was a disabled black woman. Yeah. And I, my theory, I mean, I don't know if this is true. Obviously, I'm not going to ever try to talk to this motherfucker who killed her, but like, or helped kill her, but I kind of think it was just an excuse to, like, kill a black woman, like, to that just sounds brutalize right. somebody, because, mm-hmm. yeah, like, I don't think any of this was, like, I mean, maybe, like, the kids who were involved didn't have that, you know, thought process, but this guy is, like, notoriously racist and evil, so. Oh, Jesus. Yeah. So James Daniel Nelson, also known as Highlander, on the streets. Oh, God. So, yeah, I th- he changes his name to, I think, at one point goes by Thantos, and then it's like a whole, it's very mythology heavy. 
But anyway, James Daniel Nelson first came to Portland uh, in 1992 as a teenage runaway from Sacramento, California. Uh, like a lot of teens who were flocking to the area, he had a troubled background and a strong desire for adventure, or at least like the fantasy game version of it. He dubbed himself Highlander and spun like kind of crazy tales about like his oh, skills and I don't like that. Yeah, at all. like uh, being a fucking hitman at one point and like a mm. CIA product like mm, operative. Nope, and I'm a good. lot of other like impressive if you're a disaffected youth shit. And while he was definitely bullshitting about being a hitman, he was definitely violent. His first street family, which he wasn't the leader of, he was just a kid because he would recently joined it. Uh, was eventually arrested for a string of murders and assault, in, assault, including a stabbing that James committed of a 15-year-old homeless boy under also under a bridge. Shut up. Yeah. So he was arrested and sent to jail for 10 years, uh, and upon release, returned to his former life as a transient, uh, despite being, like, 27. So Jesus. Tried to take... So... In 2003, which is when he was released, he had aged out of most of the services that were being offered to homeless youth in the yeah. area. This varies from state to state and agency to agency, but for the most part, youth services aren't really offered to people once they hit, like, 25. So you usually, like, older youth services are usually geared at people from 18 to 24. The whole gamut is usually, like, 12 or 13 to 21 or 24. Like, depending. I know here, our youth services only goes up to 21. Uh, or... Private organizations can be different, like Jasmine, the queer oh, okay, service yeah. serves people to, towards 24, and I think a lot of other queer services, at least locally, are that way, because that, that's largely when your brain stops developing and what Makes have sense. you. But, yeah, and there's also a push in some criminal justice circles and, like, reform circles to actually change, like, in states where you can be kept in a juvenile facility until you're 21, a lot of people want to push that to 24 because of that brain development piece. But either way, he was 27, so he was, you know... I would appreciate that. Yeah, significant. Yeah, I think that would be very beneficial. Because realistically, like, people's 21-year-old brains are much more similar to 17-year-old brains than, like, 28-year-old brains. Which is weird, but true. Yeah, and it makes sense. Again, like, varies from person to person, but on a general level. But either way, James was at least several, if not six years too old for this stuff. So unwilling to comply with the rules enforced and transitional housing in adult shelters, because like, I think it stands to reason there's probably more, maybe not necessarily more structure, but you have more responsibility when you're in an adult facility than a child's one. Uh, he didn't want to do that. He didn't want to get a job or I think work towards sobriety or anything like that. He shifted focus towards taking charge of the streets so, spinning... I hate that phrase. Yeah, I fucking hate it too, but I wrote it, and it's true. He wanted to be, like, a, I don't know, like, a badass or whatever. He spun even more wild tales about his life, including making up, like, different scenarios for the reason he went to prison to make himself sound like a badass and not just, like, a piece of shit who murdered a teenager. Uh, he told, in, like, one rendition, a very popular one that he told women in particular... He said that he'd murdered the man he caught raping his younger sister. Fucking ew. Yeah, I don't even know if he has a younger sister, but, like, if you were trying to seduce a woman and you're like, oh, I have a record, but it was because I murdered a guy who was brutalizing a woman in my family, that would be like, oh, well, like, good for you. Of course you did that. Yeah, like, oh, okay, that's fine. Yeah. Like, like, honestly, if a guy came up to you and was like, I murdered a rapist, so I went to jail for it, you'd be like, well, I mean, he was I mean, a that's kind of hot. <laughs> yeah. I mean, but you would be like, that's, you know, different than yeah. killing a helpless teenager. Like, exactly. The opposite, kind of. So this guy, again, piece of shit. <laughs> just like, 
And I don't, like, I don't, in a way it almost feels like punching down because I think living a life on the streets and dealing with stuff like that could be really hard. But at the same time, he was like a racist, violent, grown ass white dude taking advantage of teenagers. So I don't feel bad for calling him a piece of shit. Yeah, no. But anyway, uh, eventually a group of fairly naive, like young people, teenagers kind of coalesced around James and he dubbed them the Thantos Street family or just Thantos. Uh, the very same family Jessica would eventually meet that spring. Uh, members of the family were given names inspired by either like their traits or Nordic mythology. And most of the time or most of their time was kind of devoted to like manufactured drama, which like you can kind of expect for a group of teenagers. Um, when Jessica came into the picture, James was already wielding his power as like this malevolent, shitty father figure, doling out physical punishments to any child who dare violate his rules. Uh, before Jessica's murder, some of the male members were brutally be- like beaten without in an, within an inch of their lives. Oh God! Yeah, for various rule violations, for like breaking up with people inappropriately, for like moving on to one relationship <laughs> from the next one too fast, like uh. really awful, awful shit. And Sarah, who is actually one of James's ex girlfriends and a former like leader figure uh, in the family, uh, was also brutally beaten and had her hair like forcibly like cut with a knife like off of her which was a like ritualistic thing and this is also like I've seen this in other street family stuff especially on the west coast like a thing where it's like a humiliation yeah it's like a humiliation tactic and it's like people who actually do the cutting earn like an honorary title kind of thing yeah like it's like their version of like death eaters I, that sounds awful, but that's what this shit reminds me of. <laughs> Stop laughing, dude. I'm sorry. Just, I... I know we need, like, a little levity, but that's No, I'm sorry, but it's just the fact that you managed to connect I this to Harry Potter. I wasn't is just... Try, like, I'm not trying to, like, shoehorn that in. That's what it's like. It's, it's just, like, do something terrible, and you get this terrible title You get this weird terrible. badge of honor for being horrific. For being awful and violent, yeah. It's just the the fact that you managed to make this about Harry Potter is Again, not like magnificent. something I that's not written down, it was just something I thought of, but it was like, if you beat people yeah, up. Yeah, it was like you, getting their death mark. Yeah, like Is if, that what it's called? Their dark mark. But I'm not a Harry Potter fan, clearly. Not the point. But it was like this fucking rite of passage, which again, fucking gross. <laughs> Honestly, the fact that this was like literally a rite of passage for them is yeah i mean also killing people was rite of passage for them so it like again like these are clearly nothing great was gonna come out of this yeah and like today like contempt or at least like over the past 10 years or so even longer than that actually maybe the past 15 years some street families in portland specifically have been recategorized as gangs like by law enforcement and even though like i'm really skeptical of that stuff most of the time they are largely neo-nazi white organizations so it yeah. kind of makes sense to categorize them that way because they are violent uh there's and they like, do shit like this. they do shit like this like initiation rights and stuff where people get hurt or fucking killed and that is some like organized crime shit yeah it's fucking scary and awful and there i mean like there are kind of more recent murders with organized groups like this where they just like jump kids in libraries and shit like that and it's as someone who worked at a library for like half a decade that is uh, yeah. horrifying to me yeah about. i can especially because i worked at the downtown library for a long time and it well, was like right in front of like that's Heming also Plaza. where the kkk guy who just chills and yeah Jackson, like he always hangs out around there and it freaks me the fuck out Ugh. sorry 
My our like, our city is like body. a circus of misery. <laughs> oh my god. Do you remember like a few years ago when um, the KKK was handing out flyers in San Marco? Ugh, they were also handing them out in Riverside. Yes. I found many of them just like strewn about like near I was fans. handed many of them. You are visibly not Aryan. <laughs> That's strange. <laughs> Sorry. It's just It true. was just like... Like, oh, all right. This you is, like, do you, I, like, they, this is, you know what, okay. this is fine, guys. We're just gonna, I'm just gonna keep walking. I okay? would literally just be like, you're not killing me, so I'm just gonna go. Bye. Oh my god. I think that, I, honestly, I think this, what was even scarier than that was when I was handed that flat earth pamphlet down, like, over in Riverside. We have a lot of weird people in our city, but. Jacksonville's weird, It man. is weird. Let's get back on track, though. So, ultimately. Sorry. Or, uh, after her. Jessica's rule violation came to light. And again, to be clear, I think this is total bullshit. And I think it was just an excuse for a violent racist person to murder a disabled woman of color because he was a piece of shit. Uh, James coaxed a like kind of newbie member named Danielle Cox, who was named in her, that's her real name, but her name in the group was Shadowcat. So, oh God, yeah, I don't like that at all. I don't all. like it either. But she was act- not a typical uh, street kid. She was a young woman who'd abandoned, like, a pretty privileged life as a college student with, like, I think her tuition full paid for, everything, just, like, a regular-ass college student uh, to join a street family. So, there's that. And, like, I mean, that happens. Sometimes people kind of abandon their stations in life that are conventional and safe to, I don't know, experience, like, a sense of adventure or something on the streets, but that's kind of, like, the gutter punk ideology. But, alas, uh... He convinced Danielle to carry out Jessica's murder as a rite of passage. So again, rite of passage bullshit. Uh, it's fucking gross. And I like that was when she was going to become like whatever their version, because I can't remember the name of like Death Eaters. Like their shitty, awful agents of death or whatever. Ew. Yeah. So ultimately, 11 members of the Thantos family, including James and Danielle, were arrested for the torture murder of Jessica Williams. Good. Uh, yeah, fucking good. And uh, the char- well, the charges against them kind of varied depending on their role in the murder, but they range from kidnapping because one boy lured her into, yeah. like literally lured her to her death because they were friends, which is, ew, I know, to aggravated assault and more. But James, Danielle, and Jimmy Aaron Stewart, who was the boy who was like tasked with luring her to her death originally because, again, they were fucking friends, uh, which I guess like maybe that's not important, but it just feels like. So it much, makes it ex- extra skeevy. Yeah, it's, like, so much manipulation and, like, I, taking advantage of somebody who, like, cared about her friends and was trusting, you know? Yeah. Like, that's why it just feels, like, so gross and so awful. It's more, like, the violation of trust that's yeah. implicit in that that makes it so much grosser. Yeah, and I don't, I'm sorry, I don't have a better word for it than gross. Yeah, it's but. hard, because it's like, this would, even if they did just ambush her when she was, like, walking down the street and they had no idea who she was, it would be horrifying and awful, but it's like, these people were, like, a, you know, a family of sorts, even a fucked up family, but, like, she cared about them, and they, you know, had memories together, and, when, you know, whatever people talk about her, it's, like, in glowing terms, and that she was sweet, and, like cool and kind and all this stuff and it's like just to see all of that and be like I'm gonna believe this asshole and like watch you get hurt yeah it's just rough but anyway uh all three of them so James Danielle and Jimmy were convicted of average god talking is hard (laughs) aggravated murder 
So that's like generally an additional charge. It usually ups the sentence a little bit. Uh, Danielle and Jimmy are serving 25 years and James, thank God. And I usually don't say this about harsh sentences, but was sentenced to life without parole. Honestly, thank fucking God. <laughs> he needed to be kept off the streets. Yeah. Like, I'm he sorry, but there do- are some people who, who just need to be in prison. Like, or yeah. just maybe not in prison, but just not in the general population yeah. of human beings. Just like elsewhere. He needs to be elsewhere. And just he like start another penal colony. <laughs> don't do that. But just like keep him away from people, especially well, people like people. him can be put yeah. on that penal colony. Just by themselves Ugh. forever. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I guess I'm fine with shipping Nazis to a penal colony because fuck them. But yeah, they, and like, I don't, you know, I don't, again, like, it's hard to think that, like, he was released after murdering somebody as a kid. With a group, but still, like, he stabbed someone to death, and he was released after 10 years, and it's like, you know, on one hand, charging kids with really high, you know, giving kids really harsh sentences is rough, and, like, I don't think it's necessarily ethical, but it's almost like, I don't think he should have gone right to the streets. Like, I think there should be, like, some sort of mental health situation or something before people are just, like, thrown unleashed on society. Yeah. Because it's like, if... I mean, I don't know, like, obviously he's a fucking terrible dude and a bigot and violent, but, like, if there had been some sort of, like, safety net to keep him from immediately, like, preying on kids again. Yeah. Just something to, like, like, you know, protect others from him. I don't even know what the answer to that is or why I'm, like, spinning my wheels here, because, like, especially for... So, spoiler alert, if you are listening to this as, like, an especially heinous episode, we're releasing this uh, as kind of bonus content for our regular show, The Less Dead. And, you know, on that, we talk a lot, like, we talk primarily about The Less Dead. So, victims of color, uh, disabled people, queer people, and just kind of the shift, the shitty end of the stick they get in terms of coverage for their cases and services and, like, protectiveness and stuff that society does actually grant non-marginalized people. Yeah. And so it's, like, I don't know. I think, a, like, it because of that kind of angle, it does make me want to be, like, how the fuck do you even present, prevent, how do you, like, take into account not, you know, putting someone under the jail when they're a kid, but also, like, not allowing people like this to wreak havoc and, like, ruin just families and, you know murder innocent people it's rough and like one so kind of related um but a girl that i went to high school with was murdered by two of our classmates we will who be talking about this eventually yeah this will be a case that we cover it's just rough because because like... it all happened while we were all in school together and the two guys who committed her murder were given Life without parole. Which is now considered unconstitutional. Yeah, and they were, I think, given 40 to life now. Yeah. Which, like, cool, great, but my, I, I do have a personal conflict about it. Yeah. Just because, like, if, honestly, at 17, if you don't know that murdering someone is going to have horrific consequences how for you. How do you not know that? If you were, like, you know, just, like, how do you... I like I In get the it. Case you're, you're talking about this also like this like very calculated, like hundred percent premeditated like to a T. It like personally in this case I do feel that them get, being given life without parole was kind of justified because yeah. they they clearly the whole spoiler alert they committed her murder because they wanted to commit a string of bank robberies up and down the East Coast and they knew so, they would have to kill people to do that so, so they, they wanted, wanted to, to like practice. practice. So somebody like that. 
don't know if there's any coming back from that. Yeah, it is kind of like, I don't know, like as... Like, that's where my personal conflict yeah. comes in with, like, giving a minor life without parole. It's like, I get that it... Yeah. St- their brain is still forming, but, like... Well, I... At 17, how do you not know that you're even gonna you- get caught if you murder someone? Like, you're gonna get caught. Yeah, and not even that you're gonna get caught, but also that, like, you're taking someone's life. You're not just, like, uh, getting in a fight with somebody, hitting them. You're not just, like... It's not a temporary action. You know, when you're six... Like, they lured her don't know away that, from but- our high school... To commit her murder. That is, like, eerily similar to this case in yeah, some way. Yeah, which is why, like, him being given life without parole, okay. It kind of makes sense. Fine. And he's an adult, so I don't really feel... Yeah, like, alright, fine, like, shit. Like, good. Bye. Yeah, exactly. And, like, I mean, I'm sure he's, like, wreaking racist havoc in prison, too. There so, are like, some whatever. people who do, like, truly deserve to rot in prison. Yeah. And, and he, he is, is one of them. Yeah, exactly. Like, this man is fucking awful. And again, I know this is a heavy episode, and it's not, like fun and lighthearted but I feel like it's an important story I did not know about Jessica's case until I read this book uh I like and I had only picked up the book because I was like watching an old documentary about just like street culture yeah (laughs) like just for funsies one day so like I don't know it's one of those things where I think a lot of the cases we've talked about like on The Less Dead are kind of main stay show are I mean unknown for a lot of people but like people who are plugged into true crime sometimes especially like people of color and queer people do know who those people are oh yeah i think a lot of people probably have no idea who jessica williams is i'd never heard of this case which is you know awful it's not that you know it was god 16 years ago not that long ago at all yeah and i think it's just and the fact that there was like probably an entire like tv show episode based on her yeah and they don't even i don't i almost wish which would be so clunky to do on a like fictionalized police procedural and i know like to kind of draw reference to it it would be hard to like honor the victims they're talking about and it would be weird but i almost wish they could or like have like a like i think there should be like an e-true hollywood story sort of type thing about svu where they just do like that would be super interesting yeah where they talk about like especially in cases like this where people don't really know about it they sort of you know zoom in on these cases that they've taken inspiration from and actually talk about them. Yeah. But, uh, I mean, I guess that's kind of what we were doing, but anyway. We're filling the gap. (laughs) We're trying. (laughs) But to maybe lighten the mood a little bit, because like I said, I know that's really fucking heavy and depressing. My favorite part of the episode. (laughs) We are here with our iced tea tidbit. This one's actually quite fun, like last week's. Uh, In a 2012 appearance on Conan, Ice Tea's wife, Coco Austin, revealed that Ice-T has a bit of a shoe kink, saying, we watch a lot of TiVo at night, and when we want to calm down and relax, I might whip out the heels. He's a shoe freak. I love it. I love that. That's hot. Yeah. I like, full parasol. <laughs> That's hot. I feel like Coco would love that. I love them. So, yeah, we are... That is... Do I have to now (laughs) Photoshop a pair of heels onto a picture of Ice-T? Because I will. Or just, like, him lusting after a pair of heels? No, I think putting them on him would be funnier. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think he's probably more into seeing Coco wear them, but fair enough. I mean, I did put his face onto an armadillo. Yes. If you would like to uh, see that beautiful image, go to our Twitter. What the fuck is our Twitter handle? (laughs) Because we couldn't just have a specially heinous because there is a book by that name, which already has that. Yeah. It is. It's esp heinous, something it's like ESP that. Esp underscore heinous. So fun. not like the psychic connection esp, but I like, mean it's spelled the same way. Who cares? <laughs> I know. I was just trying to make it a little less like cheesy, but I just made it worse. Yeah. Anyway, as I am wont to do, I am here to make this worse. 
we're also just spinning our wheels after talking about a horrible man and what he did to a poor woman for like an hour and a half. Yeah, I was also here for like a full ass hour before we started recording because just I couldn't around. I couldn't turn my brain off. Yeah. All right. Well, we will be back uh, next week, hopefully, if we can get our shit together with something ideally a little less depressing. But yeah, we'll see about that. Either way, stay tuned. Bye.